0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa podcast. This is episode 43, and we are back to talk about more fantastic wines and more fantastic women. And as a reminder, you can find us on Instagram at Mimosa Sisterhood, which honestly, that's really the only platform I use. So go check us out there. Be sure to follow us and... um, Let's give a big round of applause for our next guest host, Kara Michelle Lou. Hello. How's Hello. it going? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for wanting to be on the show. And tell us about one of your favorite ladies. So Kara and I know each other in our real lives because we ended up on a... Softball team together in Long Beach, California. Woo crew! What? The Woo Crew hashtag. Woo crew. Woo crew. <laughs> They're amazing. <laughs> um, uh, I am no longer. I, I don't think you are on the team no. anymore either. <laughs> we both are no longer on the team. However, we still very much rep the team. Absolutely, Uh, my Um. husband's still
1: on there, so I still hang out with everyone. Um, Well, I will once COVID's over, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fun fun team. It was a little cursed.
0: You remember the curse that was going on though there for a while. Uh, yeah, all the injuries. Yeah, and I'm not gonna lie. Some of our earlier episodes, I have reported a few incidents on this podcast from the softball, and I'm sure you can guess. Which one in particular uh, oh probably yeah. made it, included a tooth.
1: Oh my um. goodness.
0: Yes. That was that was so amazing.
1: And I learned so much. I did not know that you, you can put your tooth back in and it will <laughs> re-implant. But I'm glad I know that now.
0: I didn't know that either. I had no idea. And wait, hold on. Wasn't your husband the one that yes, did Yes. Oh my God. It was a
1: complete, complete unfortunate accident. And... <gasps> Um, he was, he was just throwing the ball, a little practice throw and the sun got in her eyes and yeah, yeah, it was bad. I felt so bad.
0: I felt horrible because I couldn't stop laughing. And it wasn't that she got injured and lost her tooth. It was when I saw the tooth and it was literally, completely. Yeah. Yeah. It it was like an inch long. And the minute that I made eye contact with that enormous tooth I went into like a fit of hysterical laughter and it was uncontrollable and it was so inappropriate <laughs> I just couldn't stop I'd never seen anything like that in my life
1: I just stood there in shock yeah yeah but luckily the rest of the team everyone kind of acted and someone picked it up and yeah it just like and she ran off and thank god yeah like she got it back in there because
0: and it, it looks better than ever she even sent does. us a picture of it recently it does yeah yeah <sighs> thank well, god yeah great times on the woo crew um also did you cut your hair i did i did you know you I, are rocking a pixie i
1: i'm going through some changes you know i don't know if other people out there are feeling the same way but it's really uh well well first of all with covid like i was on furlough and then um my my job let me go uh laid off Um, I like to call fired, (laughs) but um, making me realize uh, that this time is really precious and each day is precious. And so something I've been thinking a lot about is writing. And so I I don't know if you go through this too, but like just when you change, uh, you want your physical appearance to change. And so I go through this at different points in my life. And so this was just one of those times that I'm like, I need to chop my hair and I was I was like I need to shave it but I'm like
0: I don't know <laughs> I don't know how Mark will feel about that but... well you rock a pixie really well thank you thank and you so much it's so much easier also... I have
1: thick I have thick hair and it's just hard to manage so well, I'm
0: loving it you're, you're really <laughs> rocking you.
1: it thank you thank you yeah I'm so much happier with it this way I have a two year old too so it's just like it's I, I can't even think about my hair right now so it's good
0: which like Obviously, we need to address the fact that your two-year-old is the cutest baby on planet Earth. Thank you. I think you said, I don't like all babies, but I like your baby. (laughs) (laughs) Your baby is literally my favorite baby. Like, I just have never seen a cuter baby in my whole life. And, like, she's not only just, like, physically cute, but she just has this, like precious aura about her where you're she like as a happy happy, happy soul. you she really and is I happy yeah. rarely care about hugging people's babies and I'm like, oh my god this is my favorite baby like I honestly think Veda could win like the annual Gerber baby contest Aww, she is thank you. so yeah. sweet <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're we're super lucky and we we love her and uh yeah it's but it's it's tiring when they're two you know like it's yeah i can only imagine (laughs) but their opinions are early and it's good like she's an independent uh little lady and she she walks with quite the swagger like people say like oh my gosh she's so confident and i'm like i know
0: and i hope she always keeps that you know so yeah well you mentioned creative writing so what is happening with that you said covid creative writing change is happening what do you got going on lots of change um I
1: have been, I don't know, like, if, if anyone else out there is doing this, but, like, I am really into challenges lately, like, there was, there's this, like, yoga 30-day challenge um, that I sunk my teeth into by, uh, it was, like, yoga by Cassandra, it was, like, t- just 10 minutes a day, I do 10 minutes a day, and I've lacked discipline my entire life, and so I was like, can I do this, you know, I, I'm, like, yeah, I can do it, you know, and so uh, Mark and I actually did it together, and then that ended, and we're like, okay, well, what do we do now, and and then it just so happened, Runners World had this like streaking challenge, and no, not streaking naked through through the, the neighborhood, but, Darn. <laughs> but uh just just the streak being that every day you're running, and so yeah, I've been really surprised. I think it's just that I'm like lacking a schedule right now. That it's it's helping me to know like, oh, I have to do this thing you know first every day and basically the, the challenge is just you just do a mile every day at least and so nice. it's been it's been eye opening to to realize like oh i can be disciplined actually so mm-hmm. and then the other thing like that i've been doing um excited to do is just kind of like i'm trying to pursue my dreams and um uh I, we started this company with co-founded this company, um, Sunday Dinner Publishing, with our friends. And it actually started during a Sunday dinner that Mark and I had with two friends of ours. And, um, and the three of us had worked for Educational Publisher, and our conversations usually were surrounding the current divisive state of affairs um, and the lack of diverse stories in print and just trying to figure out what we could do about it. And so we created this company that we hope to bring everyone's stories to the table, specifically elevate the the neglected uh, stories of people of color. And one thing led to another, and we founded it. And um, since then, we've started this blog, which Melissa, you were part of, and you wrote this beautiful piece um, for it. So I'm so (laughs) thankful that you did that. And, but yeah, our overall goal is just to share diverse stories in an attempt to educate and connect people and hopefully combat ignorance and racism because it is running rampant lately. So, yeah,
0: it really is. And your blog is fucking kick ass. And, like, thank you for saying that. When. When you asked if I wanted to participate in it, I was like, well, of course, yeah, I love to do anything that involves writing. But like, I didn't really understand the magnitude that that piece would have on me. Like, I was like, sure, I'll write a Sunday dinner about my family. Like, what's the big whoop, you know? And then when I like sat down with some wine and started writing it, I was like, holy shit, like, this is extremely fucking emotional. Like, I am digging up so many. Feelings from my childhood that I have not even considered or thought about or remembered in a decade. And then, like, thinking about my grandparents who've already passed and, like, how special they were and this and that. And then also just, like, as an adult, like, looking back on that experience and being like, wow, like, that neighborhood that my grandparents grew up in and raised my dad in and I went to very frequently is, like, a totally crazy colorful wild characteristic of a neighborhood (laughs) like there is so much going on there and and you captured every detail i was just like how does she remember all of this like it was it was really beautiful you are an amazing writer i am so happy that you allowed me the opportunity to write it also i shared it with all of my family members who like don't even know that i write and were they amazed blown away but then even like my siblings and my cousin they were like holy shit like you captured it so well down to the jacuzzi the smell of the jacuzzi like yeah i was there with you i'm like oh my gosh i know exactly what it looks like and yeah so yeah you guys are doing really awesome things the stories have been incredible um it's really beautiful and it's like such a positive special thing that you're bringing in especially in such like a troubling time
1: yeah for sure yeah it's really kind of revived me and especially during the the times when we weren't around anyone just feeling that isolation and really missing my family and so and friends and um so it just yeah it, it really helped me so much uh, so check us out at com, And uh, yeah, we we are moving on soon to books uh, in the fall. So we have a children's book coming out. And uh, so we're excited about it. And- that
0: is huge. Uh, just casually dropping a children's book coming out in fall. <laughs> 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 That's freaking awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I, I wrote it, so I didn't want to sound like... <laughs>
0: Uh, I don't know. I I don't know how to do these uh these plugs. Well, we'll have to bring you back in on in the yeah fall and you yeah can that tell would us be great. Book. Yes, yes. Cool. I would love that. And then also, what's the social media where we can find Sunday Dinner?
1: So it's just it's at Sunday Dinner Pub. We're on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So yeah, awesome. Check us out. And we're always looking for more stories. So please, please. Uh, Contact us. We would love to share your story.
0: Perfect. Well, all of my listeners like to hear stories, so I'm sure there's some that have some to tell you as well.
1: Perfect. Yeah.
0: Yes. Thank you. Well, should we dive into the wine review? Let's do it. All right. What are you drinking? So I thought this
1: was like so special. This is my first podcast, so um, I I thought bubbles were in order, so I got a little LaMarca uh, Prosecco. From Italy. Oh, yeah. And the back says, I love this, crafted in the heart of Italy, Lamarca Prosecco sparkles with lively effervescence, blossoming notes of honeysuckle, and citrus complement crisp green apple, juicy peach, and ripe lemon. That is
0: quite the sale. (laughs) Who wouldn't buy that after that kind of description exactly well I'm very excited that you have that because we rarely drink bubbles on this podcast which is honestly a crime considering Mimosas. <laughs> exactly and in fact my last guest host is like one of the first people to ever have a mimosa on this show I was like thank you you've done us justice Um, so yes, you're now officially part of the Bubbles crew, which is very petite on this show, but is much needed. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I like it all. And yeah, I was just feeling, feeling very bubbly tonight. So yeah.
0: Woohoo! All right. Well, I am drinking... A bottle that I literally just bought for my dad for Father's Day. And I saw this and I was like, oh yes, that's dad. And then I was like, but wait, I want this wine. So <laughs> I had to go back a couple days later and buy it for myself. <laughs> um, but it's called the Baritage, I think, or it's Baritage, it's probably Baritage. And there's literally the cutest little bear man oh, on wow. the front that's of this bottle. <laughs> yeah, I call my dad the Jer Bear. That's perfect for my dad. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I love it. And it's a, it's a Zinfandel, which I don't ever drink Zinfandales, but my dad likes them. So that's why I got it. And I was like, well, I'm going to try something new. And I'm enjoying it. I'm like trying to branch into like more of the red wines and I feel like Zinfandel is just like so not like for me, but I'm very pleased. It's a 2017. I feel bad because I'm probably going to butcher the name of this winery, but I <laughs> let it let it go. <laughs> I think it's called Harris the Family Cellars. Sounds good to me. But it's a Northern California wine. Um and it's pretty good, so it's decent price, and I'm a fan. All right, well, I'm going to have another sip, and then I think we can get started. Sounds good. And you are up first, my dear. Okay. Um, so,
1: given the recent deaths, I, I... I I have to talk about this, and I know it's I'm, it's hard to say light and airy and fun, but um, given the recent deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the countless black people that continue to be killed due to racism in our society, I wanted to share an amazing woman that I recently learned about for the first time while trying to educate myself and confront my own bias as a white woman. I am... Truly awestruck by this woman, her strength, forgiveness, but not forgetfulness, and her relentless determination to make life better for all people. Fannie Lou Hamer was a black female civil rights activist, icon, committed democratic leader, and eloquent orator. And that is who I'm covering today.
0: Woohoo! I've never heard of her, so I'm very excited. I was nervous
1: that you had already covered her, so because she is amazing. So get ready. No,
0: and I've never heard of her, so I'm super excited to hear her story.
1: (laughs) So during a speech in 1971, Fannie Lou Hamer shared, you might be expecting me to have a long essay written down, but I don't carry a manuscript because it's just too much trouble. I'm just here to rap and to tell you what it is and to tell you like it is. And I wish I could be like Fannie and be as articulate and bold as she was in her speeches without notes, but... I do have a bit of a manuscript here because I am certain I would mess it up if I didn't. Um, she was born in 1917, um, the 20th, 20th child of a Mississippi sharecropper family. Oh, wow. um, and so she talks about, she's like, I'm so thankful to my mother because I had like narrowly joined the the family,
0: basically. Was she like the last one? Was she the 20th? The 20th, oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, she barely made the cut. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Um, So, but she said, I I know what the pain of hunger is about. My family was some of the poorest people that was in the state of Mississippi. We were sharecroppers. And uh, I remember learning about sharecropping, but I definitely, like, looked it back up to make sure that I understood exactly what she was going through. And, well, tried to. I will never know what she went through, but... The, the sharecropping system ultimately kept black workers in debt, and you couldn't leave without the approval of the plantation owner, and you weren't paid enough to run away. So um, she said, because my family made 60 to 70 bales of cotton, and then somehow we would end up in debt. So they were pretty much killing it um, and uh, y- you know picking a bunch of co- cotton, and but then not being paid properly for it. Um, at six years old, the landowner stops her. She's playing on the side of the road. She talks about this in one of her speeches. And six years old asks, uh, "Hey, can you can you pick cotton?" and uh, and expected her to to go to the field and and pick thirty pounds. And she did it. But then the next week, he expected sixty pounds. And uh, eventually, Fanny had to l- leave school in order to help her family. Uh, Full time in the fields. Um, So by the time she was 13 years old, she was picking two or three hundred pounds of cotton. And uh, I mean, what I've heard about picking cotton, I haven't picked it myself, but it's really painful. Um, And um, because there's the plant has uh, like prickly pieces on it. Um, And so just just to imagine that her, her childhood was completely stolen from her and uh just only she was only able to go to school until sixth grade and and, and imagine that so so finally finally her family is able to raise enough money that they're able to buy three mules and two cows um and yeah some white people thought oh let's let's kill this livestock because we can't let them have livestock for some reason
0: So not only... Yes. Wait, was the livestock used to help them with picking cotton? Or was it like they just had livestock for uh, property value almost? They were able to... Yeah, the mules,
1: I think, uh, help them in, in the fields while also... Um, I'm sure there are other purposes. The cows, you know, the milk and, and so on. So, but it was a way of making another uh, more money too yeah. uh, with the milk and everything. So, it just not only was the system rigged against them, but any time they tried to make their lives better, it seems reading her story that white people opposed them and just tried to keep them down. Um, by ten or twelve, Fanny asked her mother, "Why, why can't we be white?" basically like literally just asked that uh, we work all the time and the white people didn't work but yet they have everything you know and her mother just said uh, great advice uh, I don't know that I would have this if if I was in her shoes and she said one day if you respect yourself other people will respect you too and I hope that you see by the end of this that it w- was that she was able to to follow what her mom said and, and she accomplished exactly it, it, that. So in her story, it's been, it was amazing to read. So, um, in 1944, she married, um, Perry hammer, uh, a tractor driver on another, uh, uh, plantation called the Marlow plantation. And, um, when she moved there, because she was actually able to read and write, you know, pretty well. Um, and so, uh, despite only you know going to sixth grade working in the fields and only going to school till the sixth grade she was she was really, really good at reading and writing and so um, she was promoted to this position called the timekeeper, which I also was like, wait what 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 is that um, and it's I guess a liaison between the sharecroppers and Marlowe the plantation owner and one of her jobs was to use this measuring device um, and his was rigged somehow and so when he would walk away she would use her device that was not rigged in order to um, try to compensate and give a fair measure for the harvest for the the, the, these sharecroppers um so i think it's incredibly brave because each time she did this she was risking her life if she was caught so
0: wow yeah super brave
1: yeah definitely so so I also read she worked in the house and, um, they told her, um, you know, you can't eat with us even though you're like working here and, you know, don't bathe in our tub basically. And so she says in one of her speeches, I used to have a real ball knowing that they didn't want me in that tub and just relaxing in that bubble bath. (laughs) So
0: she was that brave when they would go away. Yes. Yes. How amazing is that? Uh, She's, like, just taking her sweet time, rub-a-dub-dub, humming to some songs, (laughs) brushing her
1: hair, like, (laughs) yeah. And then she says, when they said I couldn't eat with them, I just ate first. And so she was just rebelling in the only way that she could and respecting herself and validating herself through these, you know, brazen, courageous acts. So, um, And she said, she also said... So what I'm saying to you, white America, is please don't say what black people can do because some of the things we're already doing.
0: Right? <laughs> for real.
1: <laughs> so how can I, yeah, be that I can't do it if I'm already doing it? So you're wrong, you know? Um, and then she also would do the laundry and she's like, oh, I'd be the best dressed at local dances because she just would wear the, the dresses oh. and never was never was caught.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> yeah, she was fearless for sure. Um, but it was like her way of, you know, protesting and being like, "No, I'm, I'm human. I'm just like you, and you know, this isn't right." So, yeah. okay, so um, Fanny and Perry uh, adopted two two girls, and um, they also were caring for uh, Fanny's disabled mother during this time, and um, her own pregnancies too had ended in stillbirths, and oh. so, it, and if this wasn't painful enough. <laughs> This is be prepared to really, really, really angry. In 1961, Hammer was sterilized without her consent when she went to Sunflower County Hospital for a minor surgery to remove a tumor. Oh, she was my. given a hysterectomy, which was known as it actually had a name because it was done to so many women. It was called the Mississippi Bectomy. Sorry, can't talk. Um, and she said about it that i would say about six out of ten uh negro women women that go to the hospital are sterilized with their tube side um i was shocked and disturbed to find out about this um i this is one of many things i didn't know and i can't imagine how painful that must have been for her ability to bear children to be stolen from her and uh, from other women without their consent and i mean that is literally being treated like an animal being neutered by by doctors and just stealing stealing something from them that they'll never get back just because of the color of their skin
0: well also to be like tricked like played and then by you know a person in a profession that's supposed to be trustworthy that's supposed to be looking out for their patients caring for their health helping them yeah And to be like completely blindsided and robbed of something that is who you are, a part of your being, that is insane. I had no idea that that ever happened.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Um, So needless to say, because of all of these things that have happened to her so far in her life, um, by August 27th, 1962... She ends up attending this meeting and learning from civil rights activists that African people have constitutionally guaranteed right to vote, and she had never heard that before. And so that that uh, changed everything for her, um, hearing that um, she talks about, um, which uh, that too surprised me, and um, it's just... It's amazing that when suffrage happened for women, it wasn't for all women, you know? And so that's, that is, um, yeah, (laughs) there are no words. There's no words. Uh, so, so now she, um, so they arrange for a group of them that are interested in registering to vote on August 31st, 1962. And so she takes a, a bus, um, and it was literally a school bus um and attempts to register to, to vote at this courthouse in Indi- indianola and i'm sure i butchered that as you said <laughs> um so while they're driving there um there were some white people driving past shouting and wielding guns and everyone on the bus was scared is how many people describe the moment and um, Fanny sang this little light of mine, and calmed everyone down with the strength of her voice. Aww. And there's a recording of her singing this, so I highly recommend you, that you take the time to to hear her because she had an amazing voice and it was really really strong. So I think I would have been calmed in that calm in that moment um, be- because of the strength of her voice, mm-hmm. and so they were. So um, so they arrive at the clerk's office to register. And as part of this registration process, they're required to take a literacy test. And these literacy tests were used to prevent black people from being able to vote. Like, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to say who they worked for and where they lived, information that the Ku Klux Klan often used to find and intimidate them. And the clerk asked them to interpret a section of the state constitution dealing with de facto laws. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I would have failed. <laughs> um, many
1: times over. And she said, I know as much about de facto law as a horse knows about Christmas Day. You know, yes. she's just like brutally honest.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: Um, so she failed the test with Davis and she just told the clerk, like, I'll be back. And she was right, she, she was back later on. So um so on the way back, the cops stop her because the bus is too yellow. That's why that's why they say they stopped them. And so they all had to pay a fine because of this this bus that was so yellow. Who knew? What? Who knew? Who knew there was something wrong with the yellow bus?
0: They're like, the yellow is blinding other drivers. You're all arrested. It's too bright.
1: It's so crazy.
0: So, um, and then not, not only that,
1: but the registrar called the plantation owner and let him know what Fanny was doing. And so when she got back, the plantation owner said, you have to withdraw, withdraw your re- registration or you're going to be fired and you have to leave the plantation. And... So, despite working with them for 18 years and you know getting a really good job uh, promotion, she could no longer work there just for registering to vote. Um, And so she ended up talking with her family and just making the, the decision that okay, I just need to leave. And so she left her family there so that they could continue to. um, have a place to live and everything um and then she was gonna stay at her friend's uh, mary tucker's house and it was shot up luckily her her husband came and was like i've got a bad feeling i don't want you to stay here after all and ended up taking her to another place and um and good thing he did because they shot up um her friend's house thinking that she was there 16 times
0: whoa yes did they get injured in the house
1: um, no, I think, I think they were okay. Yeah. Wow. um So they it was.
0: Drove by and just. Yes. Wow.
1: Yes. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was lucky that, um, that he, he had that, that premonition and that was right. Um, so, so then in the fall and winter of 1962, Fanny um, becomes, uh, the student nonviolent coordinating committee's. Uh, SNCC is their um, acronym, um, oldest voter registration worker, So she gets really involved with um, this group um, and the leaders looked for her because they actually remembered her on the bus and heard about like this woman who sang to us and like calmed us down. So they they sought her out to be a part of this group. And so she started attending workshops across the South to learn more um, on how to encourage people in her community to be politically active. Um, And then in 1963, she passed the voter registration test, which I I would never have been able to pass, um, and becomes among the first registered black voters in Ruleville, Mississippi. So then in June, she is arrested on her return trip from, voter, uh, from a voter education workshop. And really, it's just described as uh, people went into a restaurant and she actually stayed on the bus. And, and next thing she knew, she noticed that uh, her friends were being arrested. And so she ends up going out to see what's going on and why, because they hadn't done anything, <laughs> And um, then she was arrested as well. And so this is the really disgusting part, is that, so she's in jail, and then um, guards come to get her and say, we're going to make you wish you were dead. And then they brought her to another cell and instructed the two prisoners in that cell to beat her, to take turns beating her. And the first man... Uh, beat her until he was tired, and then the next. And so, and then I think at one point she, she cried out, and the, the officer who or the guard that told them to do it then like beat her in the head. In, in addition, so because of this attack, she sustained kidney damage because they had her lay down on the bed and were beating her back, and um, sustained kidney damage and, and has a limp and a blood clot in her left eye because of this which wow. impacted her sight.
0: How horrendous, absolutely horrible. Disgusting. Yeah, yeah, I I could not
1: I I don't know. I just all I can say is disgusting, yeah. It just like I, just, I
0: mean, it just makes you like disgusted of like our human humanity at like times i mean even today but like just even looking back on things like this it's just like insane to think that human beings like you and i can exist and be like that and then like go to sleep at night and carry on with themselves it's like it's it's frightening it's fucking terrifying
1: yeah so after that experience she knew nothing was gonna stop her (laughs) other than death um, because she knew that they were just going to keep doing this stuff. And I, it sounds like she just, she wasn't scared anymore of, of dying, you know. Uh, uh, super super Brave knew the cause, that it was worth it to, to, to go through this, I guess. So she ends up founding, co-founding the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And she co-founds this because the Democratic Party at the time was all white and obviously didn't represent all the people of Mississippi. So she just went ahead and, like, starts this party. Um, It's not recognized yet. Um, And so in the spring of 1964, she becomes the first black woman to run for U.S. Congress and the first black person to run for her district since the 19th century. And she ran against this um, Democratic incumbent, Jamie L. Witten, um who who was white a white man and um she ends up losing but this is where you may have heard this phrase that she coined in her campaign speech she said if i'm elected as congresswoman things will be different we are sick and tired of being sick and tired we are tired of people saying we are satisfied because we are anything but satisfied have you heard that that we are s- sick and tired of being sick and tired yes. i've definitely heard that and i yeah. did not know that yeah that she had said that wow Yeah, so she lost, but um, this is probably the most amazing thing. One of the most amazing things that she did that I was in awe of um, was she, uh, August 22nd, 1964, there is footage of this, too, because it was broadcasted Um, on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She testified Uh, Hamer testified at the Democratic National Convention to appeal to the Democratic Appeals Committee that the Democratic Freedom Party be seated and so basically recognized that that it was a part um, that it was a real party and President Johnson was so intimidated by her speech that he would, you know, that would be broadcast nationally and worried about its impact on his upcoming election that he sent political advisors to actually persuade her to not make the appeal. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And when she refused, President Johnson called an impromptu news conference to make it impossible for the national television networks to cover her testimony live. Um, And... I I cannot remember, I I didn't write down, but it was this impromptu news conference was about like the nine month anniversary of something. And everyone was kind of like, kind of knew that this was why he interrupted that he just didn't want people to see her speech because it was really powerful and you can access it on the line. Um, It's amazing. Um, So, and luckily it was televised later on and her testimony became one of the most powerful speeches of the civil rights movement,
0: um, in my opinion,
1: and in others.
0: How cool though is it that he was intimidated by her? I know. <laughs> I love that. that. Probably the <laughs> first time in her life that, that had ever happened. Yes. Wow. What an empowering moment to know that, like, you you finally are, you know, on this platform and you have something to say and people are taking it fucking seriously. Wow, that's great. So, um, so she
1: starts off by introducing herself as Mrs. Fanny Lou Hamer. And this, I didn't know when I first watched it, but reading people's accounts of this, um, this was actually, um... Uh, rebellious in her her saying this because she was defying white supremacists who actually objected I guess would not use a courtesy title with a black woman they didn't want them to say Mrs and so the fact that she said Mrs was quite powerful and probably angered a lot of white supremacists which is awesome (laughs) Uh, so um, so I I was amazed by that when when I read that um So she told them, basically, during this speech, she recounts kind of what happened to her being fired and evicted from the the plantation that she had worked at for 18 years. And detailed how she was arrested, beaten, and how she was sexually assaulted in the Mississippi jail because she had registered to vote. And she said, and this was the most powerful part of the speech, which gave me chills, um, which could be said today. (laughs) But she said... All of this was on an account of us wanting to register to be first class citizens. And if the Democratic Freedom Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America? The land of the free and the land of the home and the brave, where we have to sleep with our phones off the hook because our lives are being threatened daily, because we want to live as decent human beings in America. You need to, to look it up right now, please, because I I my mouth was just wide open and I cannot believe that I haven't heard this speech before because it really would have amazed me in school, you know? Yeah. Can we see it like on YouTube? I, okay. Um, I don't know that it's YouTube, but it's, there's so many videos of her giving different speeches and audio of her giving speeches. Uh-huh. It's well documented that. And that's the, that's the frustrating thing about this is that, um i mean i take partial <laughs> um uh fault for it but i i think too something needs to be done in education as well um so anywho um so unfortunately shocker <laughs> the party was not seated um but they offered a compromise and which was two seats um at large and they were just said no you know we're not accepting the two seats we want our entire party recognized and so this helped to change the rules of the National Democratic Party, her speech. Um, in the future, they promised that they wouldn't seat um, segregate, segregated delegations and have men in, and make sure to have men and women, black and white, in their delegations. So her 15 minutes really did change the foundation of the Democratic Party. And all this, which is amazing, with a sixth-grade education.
0: She didn't let yeah. that happen. Yeah. She's also just completely fearless. Like... There's just... She just straight is like, I don't even give a shit what happens. Like, I'm going for it. I'm shooting for the moon.
1: Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then she gets to go to, to Africa um, with this organization, um, SNCC, and... It is an honored guest in Africa. Um, And she just says, like, she describes it as a revelation, seeing black people running banks and owning businesses. And she was just really proud of her background and her ancestors. So I'm so glad that she got to to see that um, during her lifetime. Um, And then she even got to speak with, uh, in Harlem in 1964, with Malcolm X. And, um, later was, um, marched with Martin Luther King Jr., um, on wow. 1966. And it's just interesting because I think she, she has so much of them in her, like her style is so much like, kind of bringing people together the mlk she's like a great mixture of that plus also just being honest and Mm -hmm. uh, in her speeches and powerful um as malcolm x was so i I, yeah i was super blown away that i haven't heard from uh, about her so um so then um she just did so much in her life i (laughs) Like I'm going on and on, but I'm just still amazed. And so in 1965, like she went to uh, basically challenge the seating of these five U.S. congressmen um, that were sent from Mississippi and argued that black people are unconstitutionally prohibited from voting in Mississippi. And so representatives uh, should not that these representatives don't actually represent the state because not everyone voted for them. Basically were allowed to vote, but mm-hmm. despite this strong argument, they were defeated. Um, she even, although this time uh, she won. So this is great. January 1965, on behalf of Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Hamer and um, Annie Devine and Victoria Gray challenged the seat of the five U.S. congressmen sent from Mississippi, and they argued that since black people are unconstitutionally prohibited from voting, the representatives don't actually um, represent the state and therefore shouldn't be allowed to serve in the United States Congress. Sadly, they were defeated. But luckily, in 1965, um, she did win uh, the case, the lawsuit, Hamer versus Campbell, suggesting that elections in Sunflower County should be suspended until black people are given a fair chance to register. So luckily, she won and the elections were overturned. So this was um i th- I think it would be a great victory for her Hell, um yeah yeah, yeah, after being told no, no and and declined so many times defeated um uh she she was able to win this case, so
0: that's awesome, I mean, at least there's some little light of positivity of her being able to be heard and to have things you know pushed through that she's been fighting for for sure um so
1: sadly, in 1967, uh, Fanny Lou Hamer's eldest daughter dies from complications related to anemia and malnutrition and, and access to health care. And so she ends up adopting her two daughters, and then in 1968, uh, she they formally seated, she was formally seated as a delegate from Mississippi to the Democratic National Convention, and actually in this moment received a standing ovation from the convention floor for her tireless advocacy advocacy (laughs) of voting rights. So I'm so glad that They finally recognized her in the convention and gave her the standing ovation that she deserved after all of that time. Wow. So, yeah. What a long time to to wait for that. Yeah. So I was really impressed to hear about... She started this pig bank um, where she was able to... Basically, she noticed that a lot of people were malnourished and so she basically um, uh, was able to buy 35 um, female pigs and male pigs and um, produced this pig bank that that provided um, new provided pigs uh, to feed impoverished families and then they were able to once there was a, a new a piglet was born they replenished the bank and so i think that's a, an amazing idea that she came up with um that i've never heard of and a way just to to feed uh her people and and so that is so cool
0: when you said she started a pig bank i was like i literally was thinking like a piggy bank that you like put your coins in and i'm like oh is she starting like a money fund <laughs> And then you're like, She got a couple pigs and a piglet. I'm like, Oh shit, this has got this got real. We're talking like real pigs here. <laughs> yeah, oink oink, yeah,
1: real. The real oh deal. Oh
0: god, how So crazy. imagine
1: like just being hungry and then finally like you're able to like just eat some you know, real good yep. bacon and yeah. All that so, so then this kind of expands and she's able to then buy um, from from the money that she raises speaking to audience across the country, she's able to buy the first 40 acres of this freedom farm and it eventually grows with support from um, uh, I think this Wisconsin charity and it ends up being like 700 nearly 700 acres and um, yeah, it just was a place where uh, she basically was like, the only prerequisite is that you're poor and then come, come work with us, basically. And uh, I think they had to pay like a, a dollar or something, but they worked on the land and it ended up growing to. They actually built um, homes on the land. And so, um, and then she also just... Shared uh, the the fact that they were doing this with a bunch of people, and people started sending clothes, and um and so it became this amazing charitable organization, um that she built. Um, but unfortunately, the Freedom Farm was unable to sustain itself, and it never really um received in, um, institutional uh, backing, or and it wasn't a commercial venture, so. It was, uh, not able to survive without federal funding or anything. So, um, but I, I think, uh, I'm sure it helped, uh, everyone while it was there and Mm -hmm. it was so important for providing people food, shelter, and who else can say that they've, they've done that, you know, not a lot of people for that many people. So yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Um, Okay. And so because of everything that she's done, like, she received, uh, honorary doctorates from numerous universities, including Columbia College in 1968. And she also, uh, just spoke, and I would love to read just some of her, like, lines from her speeches, um, because she just did real talk. Like, she went to this University of Wisconsin in 1971, and, um, she just was very honest about the mistreatment that happened to her. And and one of the things that she said that uh, that is so true, she just said, I have a kinship with the six million Jews that were destroyed during Hitler because 40 million of my people were destroyed as they brought my ancestors here on the slave ships of Africa. When I think about the crime that has been committed um, against us as human beings and as people, I can forgive easily for a lot of things but when white america took my name that was a crime and so true Ugh. and then she talks about that she visited the um the slave manifests that are in Charleston South Car- Carolina and she said that it's it, the document said this person doesn't have a good education but she's a good breeder $25 and Ugh. she just says yeah I saw where my people had been sold as things and not human beings. That's
0: absolutely disgusting.
1: Imagine reading that about about how your race was treated, you know? Um, so, but, but that needed to be said, you know? It needs to be said that that happened. It happened, and, and it's still happening.
0: The point that she made about the Holocaust, like... N- Slavery, I feel like, in our country doesn't hold the same weight that the Holocaust does. And Absolutely. that's yep. extremely so troubling.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And then she she called out our education, which we've already kind of been talking about, but she just said, like, you've never taught us about this, this black doctor, Charles Drew, who discovered, uh, you know, that by separating plasma and I looked him up because I didn't know who he was either, which I'm ashamed to admit. Um, he he discovered that separating plasma from the whole blood and then refrigerating them separately, the blood lasts longer. And because of this discovery, um, he saved thousands of lives of the Allied forces. Um, and then she also was like, you never told us about Crispus Attucks, who was the first to die in the American Revolution. And we studied the American Revolution. And there was... Uh, I don't remember any men- mention of him. So um, it's still really a problem uh, even to this day. Um, and just a couple more quotes, because seriously, um, she really she said so many things that, that need uh, to be said, which are um, just brutally honest. This country was built on the blood and sweat of black people. Yes. Um, and, but despite all this, she really wanted to bring everyone together. and um she wanted to make the this place a better place for all people, and says that. and she acknowledged the fact that um, that white people also had died to 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 stop this from happening to black people. and so she she mentions Edmund Goodman, michael sherman, james cheney, um, and, and was thankful to them. so. She also said, "Don't tell me to go to, back to Africa unless you're, you are going back where you came from. We're all here on borrowed land, so we need to figure out how to make it work for all people in this country." And um, uh, this is, yeah, this is real re- re- relevant right now.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So
1: we, a lot of us have forgotten um, how we got here. For. <sighs>
0: Oh, I I don't even think people forgot. They just brush it under the rug. They're like, wait, what? What do you mean? No, this is our land. It's always been our land.
1: Yeah. And um, she says, like, your freedom is shackled and chained to mine. Until I'm free, you're not either. And she used a really great... um, example and she said if you think you're free and at this time this this would have made the whole crowd like say oh yeah like if you think you're free drive down to mississippi with your wisconsin plate and you'll see what i'm talking about um because i bet there there's a there was a bit of harassment that would have happened i think was her point by Mm -hmm. by making that um so and i just I, i was really moved by her forgiveness she said i refuse to hate a man because he hates me um, because if I hate you because you hate me, it's no different. And both of us are miserable. And as a result of what I can give of myself, she, she ended up, it, it wasn't just black people that came to Freedom Farm, any, any person that was poor that needed help, she helped. And, um, so that's, that's, that's big love. And, um, that is that's major forgiveness that a lot of us um aren't strong enough to to do um mm-hmm. and so um sadly um in 1976 she uh, has battles with uh breast cancer, hypertension and diabetes and ends up dying on 1977 in 1977 of heart failure and but you know and i'm sure you know uh, more than me even with doing these podcasts like her legacy just lives on and on and on. And so there are just so many things that she, she, um, so many people wanted to recognize her, um, after she had died and they, they put up a statue and, um, they even recorded her singing songs. Um, and it's called Fannie Lou Hamer's songs. My mother taught me a uh, Smithsonian folkways cassette. So if you want to hear her voice, um, it's, it's available in kind of personal stories. Um, and she also, uh, in 2006, the United States Congress reauthorized the 1965 Vo- voting rights act and named it after Fannie Lou Hamer. And, um, Rosa Parks and Coretta uh, Scott King, and um, there's even there's also a, a bronze statue of her in her hometown in Mississippi. And so you got to know a lot of people were probably um, upset about that. On her, <laughs> that would have been her 95th birthday, but oh, um, yeah. that's the amazing influence of her. And um, and so I just, despite of being tired of being tired. Fannie Lou Hamer kept fighting all her life. And she has taught me that anyone, no matter how much education or money that you have, can change the world. I admire her for leaning in and fighting for us all. And so... I ask the listeners to continue to educate themselves about racism through books and documentaries and to be the change in the world. Share Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer's story. Learn more about her and listen to her speeches, please, because she's much better than me. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, And support black owned businesses, organizations, and writers. It is amazing the change that we can make together. And I'm so sorry. I, Talked so much but i just was i'm just so amazed by her so
0: (laughs) (laughs) you killed it and you didn't talk so much you perfectly told her story and captured everything we needed to know about her life so you couldn't have done it couldn't have done a better job and i'm so i'm so happy that you covered her i actually have to admit once you started telling her story i was like this like flash clicked where I was like, holy shit, I actually have heard of Fanny before. She couldn't be a better person for this podcast. And especially in today, like today's times. And you know, I'm super, super happy because we've covered a fuck ton of people on this podcast, a very diverse group. And, you know, in the past couple of episodes, we are covering quite a few activists and i have to admit you know i we know stories of activists but like when you hear them kind of like back to back in a short time frame you can kind of see these overlapping qualities of these people where like they are the most marginalized and discriminated group of people yet they're the most compassionate, the most forgiving, the most understanding, the strongest And, you know, they have this ability to, like, make such an impact while never having, like, really, like, asked for much other than change. Yep. And so I'm just so excited because the episode I have releasing tomorrow is two fantastic women that couldn't pair up more perfectly with Fanny. So I'm very excited that we have... Three awesome people back-to-back in this podcast with incredible stories that are absolutely uplifting, but also just another reminder that, like, the fight that we're fighting right now, it, it's just still going, you know? It It, it dates is. back to you know, generations and generations of time of discrimination. And I just feel like it's, we constantly need to be reminded that, like, this doesn't end and it doesn't just go away until another big horrific event occurs. And then another fantastic activist stands up and makes an impact. Like, it it has to be an ongoing mission. Absolutely.
1: Um, It has to be talked about and not swept under the rug. And I think part of it is it's just not talked about enough. It's ignored.
0: Yeah. Oh, that was so great, Kara. You did an awesome job. I'm 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 so nervous. It's okay. <laughs> I, I hope I like. I hope I didn't talk too long. No, you did not at all. But honestly, like I feel the nervous part because one, like you're telling a story about somebody that's very very significant to history, and you want to do that person. I want to
1: honor right. her. Yeah. <laughs>
0: you don't want to like fuck it up you don't want to tell it incorrectly and there's a little more pressure behind it but i mean you did a phenomenal job and i am very excited that we covered her and that all of our listeners can hear this story because i don't think a lot of people know of fanny she definitely needs to be taught in school
1: so and i guess there's this k-12 find your voice curriculum that's um, online that has online resources to teach K twelve students. So, if there are teachers out there, it's findyourvoice. Uh, Willamette. Uh, dot edu.
0: So, so who who are you going to share? I can't wait. Well, I decided to also pick somebody who she's a black woman and she has experienced quite a few challenges in her life and she's somebody who um has made a very large impact in the industry that she's in in a very positive way while experiencing a lot of obstacles through the road so i am covering a woman whose name is misty copeland Mm -hmm. and you know her Mm -hmm. well I'm going to tell you her story. <laughs> which maybe you don't know all the details. No, of I'm her sure story. I don't. Okay. So, for the listeners, she is a ballet dancer who became the first African American woman to be promoted to principal dancer in the American Ballet Theater's 75 year history, which is the highest rank you can get within a professional dance company. Mm-hmm. And. It's so funny because I recently just... On my social media page, I'll like put up lots of graphics of things. And I recently put up a graphic of Surya Bonali, who was a black figure skater. And Misty Copeland has so many of the same experiences that Surya Bonali went through in the 90s. Oh, my. And we're in, you know, the 2020. And so... It is very interesting to see how some things just haven't changed. (laughs) History repeats (sighs) itself. But um, Misty's story does have a positive ending. So I will tell you a bit about her life. So Misty was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but she was raised in our neighboring town, San Pedro, California, which is right next to where Kara and I live. Um, right next to Long Beach, California. And so her father was of German and African-American descent, while her mother was of Italian and African-American descent. However, she was adopted by Black parents named Sylvia and Doug, who later ended up divorcing. Now, Misty was the youngest of four children from her mother's second marriage and has two younger half-siblings, one each from her mother's third and fourth marriages. So there was a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. And they were very, very poor. And at one point, the entire family of children and the mother were all living together in a single motel room and some of them having to sleep on the floor. Wow. So So. it was a rocky childhood. Um, In the early 1996 or actually in early 1996, Misty's elementary school drill team coach named Elizabeth convinced her to attend a ballet class at her local boys and girls club. And when that went swimmingly, she then suggested that she attend a small ballet school in San Pedro, which was owned by her friend, Cynthia Bradley. Misty initially declined the offer to join this dance studio in San Pedro because her mother did not have a car. She was working 12 to 14 hours a day, and her oldest sister, Erica, was working two jobs. So it just, like, it was not going to work out that somebody was going to be able to get her to and from dance classes. So Cynthia Bradley, the studio owner, began picking Misty up from school every day so that she could attend the dance classes at her studio. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. People helping. So Misty was 13 years old, and after three months of classes, she was already on the tips of her toes in ballet shoes, which was huge for ballet. I
1: have (laughs) tried on the shoe, and it is so painful. Like, yeah, yeah. A friend friend of my sister's uh, was into ballet, and yeah, there's no way.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't even call ballet dance. That is like a full-blown mental breakdown experience (laughs) like you have to be so mentally strong like i mean i tried playing playing the guitar in eighth grade and the minute that i got scabs on my fingertips i was like fuck this i'm out like ballet whole different experience so regardless of misty's immediate talent Her mother said that she had to give up ballet due to the cost and conflict within the family schedules. So Cynthia offered to host Misty in her home full time in order to continue her dance studies. And kind of shockingly, Misty's mom agreed and she moved in with Cynthia and her family. So eventually Misty and her mom signed a management contract with Cynthia and for the next three years Misty would end up spending most of her time with Cynthia and her family as she was also receiving ballet training from Cynthia's husband who was a modern dance teacher and who served as Cynthia I'm sorry as Misty's instructor and dance partner. So she like I mean I gotta be honest I think like it's kind of weird because all of a sudden she's, like, just living with this whole new family and, like, 100% ba- like ballet dancing and, like, just life has completely transitioned. And how did she feel about that and everything, you know? Like, wow. Well, and she's also very young. So, I mean, she wasn't even 14 yet. So that's a very strange thing for a young child to move out of their family's house and be living with complete strangers. Yep. And just be like 100% invested in this new sport. Yeah. That must have been really hard, but I'm sure
1: like she was also getting this amazing
0: training too. And if she
1: loved dance, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: So by the age of 14, Misty was the winner of a national ballet contest and won her first solo role. The media first noticed her when she drew 2,000 people per show as she performed as Clara in the Nutcracker at the San Pedro High School after only eight months of studying dance. Huge. (laughs) Like, insane. Ah, yeah. Um, And then, the summer before her 15th birthday, Cynthia began to homeschool Misty for 10th grade to free up more time for dance. Then, that summer, she attended a workshop at the San Francisco Ballet School and was placed in the most advanced classes and was under a full tuition plus expenses scholarship. So she was just blowing people away. I mean, it was like instant talent. Like, everybody saw it. There was no denying it. Everybody wanted her. It was a huge hit. Um, and then at the end of the workshop, she re- she was one of the only people to receive an offer to continue as a full-time student at the school, but she ended up declining because her mom wanted her to come home. Oh, no. So she ended up moving not only home, but back in with her mom into her home, which I think honestly might have still been that motel. And they fought like cats and dogs like crazy i don't
1: i don't blame the mom for missing her though that would be so hard but yeah well
0: shit gets bad oh no (laughs) (laughs) to be honest this next thing doesn't surprise me in the slightest but misty's mom like straight up hated the bradley family like she kind of like full-blown resented them Mm -hmm. and and jealous probably of all the time yeah I mean, it's like, all of a sudden, her young child was just gone and living with this other family. Like, what the hell? They were homeschooling her? Like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, who in the world? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, And I think it's one of those things where her mom probably was like, this is a fantastic opportunity for my daughter. I can't say no. I want her to have bigger and better things. But then at the same time, you're like, I don't even have a daughter anymore. Like, you know, what happened? Like, how did this happen? I'm so confused on what happened. So, so yeah, she, she didn't, she was like basically resentful of the Bradley family and she was tired of their influence that they had on Misty. And so the mom decided that her training with the family was basically over. Like you're done. It's, it's been, it's been a great like ride. It's over. So Misty was devastated and she was pissed off. And, she was like completely mortified that she felt like her dance career was ending and that she would no longer have this opportunity to train with the family that was really helping her career for the most part. And she'd recently learned, while she was at that camp in San Francisco, of the term emancipation, which apparently is a very common thing among many young performers because they want to secure their financial and residential independence when they're like young kids booming in their career. Okay. So the Bradley family introduced Misty to a lawyer who kickstarted the emancipation process. And one thing led to another, and Misty's mom got served emancipation papers. Shit hit the fan. Um... And she ended up filing a restraining order against that lawyer, and even stranger against the Bradley's five year old son, who is Misty's roommate when she lived in their house. What? But the restraining order didn't have the proper legal basis as there was like no harassment happening, no like stalking, and so it pretty much was like nulled. But they did go into like a full-blown custody battle where Misty's mom claimed that like the Bradley family had been brainwashing her into filing the emancipation papers. But then the Bradley family was saying like, hey, you signed this contract that we were her manager for her career. And so you gave us authority over what, you know, where her career went. Right. So Anyway, as a resolution, Misty's mom promised that she would no longer come between Misty and her dancing, so then the emancipation papers and the restraining order were dropped, but the mom was still super adamant that the Bradleys were no longer in Misty's life, and she ended up re-enrolling her back into San Pedro High School for her, su- for her junior year, and she made her switch ballet studios. So it was a messy drama. Like, shit hit the fan. And I can't say I'm not surprised. Like, I, I'm i not shocked that her mother was super bummed out that her daughter kind of just got taken under the wing of this more prominent, well-off family who could give her everything she'd ever wanted, and then the mom kind of was just kicked to the curb. Yeah. Oh, so it, so painful it's just... It's a messy For her messy to be, cut, like, caught in the middle of that. Oh, yeah. Horrible. And it, it's a totally messy situation, and it's like... Really bad for her as a child. I mean, she's not even graduated high school yet. Like, what the hell? (laughs) So, not good. But after she graduated high school in 2000, she joined the American Ballet Theater Studio Company, which I'll call ABT, and she became a member of its Corp Ballet, or I'm sorry, it's called its Corp Day Ballet by 2001. And when she joined the company, she weighed 108 pounds at 5 foot 2 inches, and by 19 years old, she still hadn't hit puberty, which is a common situation with ballet dancers and like gymnasts. But after she experienced a lumbar fracture, a doctor told her that inducing puberty would help strengthen her bones, so she was prescribed birth control pills. And within one month, Misty gained 10 pounds and her small breasts swelled up to a double D cup size. Oh, wow. Her leotards had to be altered to cover her cleavage, which absolutely mortified her. And she hated that she was different from the other dancers. And she became extremely self-conscious to the point that she, like, couldn't even dance at her normal level anymore because she was constantly preoccupied with trying to cover, like, her breasts and her body. Right. So, eventually, the ballet management noticed what was going on, and they pulled her aside to talk to her about her body, which included the suggestion that she lose weight. Oh, gosh. Um, no. Also, she was 108 pounds, and she gained 10 pounds. Like,
1: what did they expect would happen when she takes starts taking birth control p- pills, you know? Like,
0: oh, who job. knows? But, um... That ended up resulting in Misty obviously having horrible body image issues. Oh, yeah. And she ended up developing a binge eating disorder. So she actually, I read a lot of this information online, um, but I also watched her documentary called A Ballerina's Tale. And in her documentary, she explained that she used to order two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts and she'd eat an entire dozen of donuts in one night, which is, like, really ironic because, you know, they're telling her to lose weight and then she's, like, binge eating. And so it's, like, almost like she's, like, having this, like, anxious reaction to this anxiety of needing to lose weight and she's trying to comfort that through eating which is a very common comforting thing for people that are experiencing like emotional trauma of some sort
1: exactly yeah she can
0: control what she's eating and kind of yeah yeah so it wasn't good um but over the next couple years she began to make friends outside of the ballet world and then she even got a boyfriend who later ended up becoming her husband and this external support system really helped her regain her body confidence again because she was surrounding herself with people that weren't directly involved with the ballet industry and they weren't constantly preoccupied with this you know, image that ballerinas needed to apparently have. And so she even had a quote that I thought was important to include. So she said, My curves became an integral part of who I am as a dancer, not something I needed to lose to become one. I started dancing with confidence and joy, and soon the staff at ABT began giving me positive feedback again. And I think I changed everyone's mind about what a perfect dancer is supposed to look like. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? It is very interesting. But in addition to the body image issues that she was struggling with... She was also the only black woman in the company out of 80 ballerinas. Mm -hmm. And she felt extremely conflicted about that and often wondered if she'd made the right career choice by becoming a ballerina in an industry that literally glorified pale skin and extremely thin body types. Like one woman in this documentary even quoted that... There's, like, a s- extremely common phrase in the ballerina world that the skin of a ballerina should mirror a peeled apple. No. Yeah, so, like, when you peel an apple, what you're looking at on the inside of that apple was what they said a ballerina's skin should look like. Pure white, basically.
1: Yeah, racism exists even in ballet.
0: Yeah. <sighs> Strongly. And so, you know misty was neither of those things she didn't have pale skin and she didn't have an an extremely thin body type she was black she was muscular and she had what the industry considered to be curvy because which is good but like because she had breasts and she was not like anorexically thin but like misty was not curvy <laughs> she yeah, was a yeah. very like thin slender woman who happened to have boobs so that was it <laughs> like she was not by any means what i think like even today's typical body stereotypes would consider curvy like she just had breasts with ba- which ballerinas didn't have And so that wasn't the common image of a ballerina. Why do we try to control women's bodies so much? Why? Why? Also, like, since when is a woman with breasts dancing a problem? Like, you would, like, you know, when I think of ballet, like, it's such an interesting form of dance because it's, like, very, like, usually, like, classical and it's, like, instrumental and it's telling some, like, dramatic story. And then there's this, like, this beautiful you know image on a stage doing these incredible dance moves and it's really quite like elegant and romantic and at times can be very like emotional and i feel like having like a woman's body telling those stories through dance would make it all the better like i, I don't understand how boobs would be interfering with the message of ballet or curves curves of any kind it's so yeah, how strange do, how does that me. interfere
1: yeah I don't understand it.
0: Who knows? But she was definitely an outsider within the ballerina world. And I mean, at least in terms of her physical appearance. But yet she was by far one of the best ballerinas in the company. So there's this irony of her like not fitting the mold, but she was better than anyone else. So it's like, well, what do we do? We have literally the greatest talent. She just doesn't look like what it's it's supposed to look like. It's so, it's insane. So, shortly after she was, like, experiencing not only the body image issues, but, like, insecurity about her race, then this article came out. I don't remember if it was in a newspaper or a magazine or something, but it basically put the ballerina world on blast, and, like, this article was published with a title that literally said, where are all the black ballerinas? Yep. And it almost, like, pushed Misty over the edge. I think, like, It kind of was like a breaking point for her because I think she felt like, wow, I've been feeling this, like, obviously this whole time, but now that, like, the world's acknowledging it too, I almost feel even more um, depleted about it because it's proof that everyone knows I can't be here. Like, this isn't my space everyone's calling it out that it's not my space and yet here i am having dedicated my whole life to this and it, it, it's like i'm hitting a roadblock like why did i do this why what's the point like it's never gonna happen so she was in a very very bad place and felt did they know that
1: do you think the intent of the article was was to uplift
0: her or was it even about her or- well i don't think so because she was So, she was at this company, which is a very elite ballet company. However, she wasn't at a point in her career within the company where she was making headlines yet. So, she was still very young and new. So, you know, she had made a big mark in her younger years, but she was, like, now in New York at this company and was kind of just mixed in with all these other great ballerinas. Like, they're all fucking fantastic. So, she hadn't really gotten to a point yet where she was, like, hitting headlines and making, like, major moves in the industry. I think it just happened to be a timely thing where, it, you know, it just, it ended up coming out at a time where she was really trying to pursue this for real. And it was just poor timing and... I mean, it was great timing. It's just she was feeling so insecure about this already that yeah, it, like yeah. totally threw her over the edge. But it almost was a good thing that has happened because. The ABT company, like clearly, could recognize that she was struggling. Like she was, she started to become really aloof. She was very isolated. She felt very lonely. She didn't want to come to class. She was late. Like she was just falling off her game. Yeah, yeah. And they decided to connect her with Susan Hill, who was the vice chair of ABT's board of directors. She was also a black woman, and they sought out Susan to basically ask if she would mentor Misty by introducing her to black women trailblazers just across the globe. And Susan knew people. Like, she was up there in, like, terms of, like, big ladies with big jobs. Like, she knew a lot of people in New York and so she was like, hell yeah, like, I, I know this girl has fantastic talent. She's literally like, she has things that we can't teach people. She's just a natural. So if she needs a little bit of help in terms of like boosting your confidence, like I'm here for it. And so she ended up introducing her to a ton of high level black women with successful careers. One of them being the very famous Hollywood actress, Diane Carroll. And the women that Misty like met they basically helped her like regain perspective and they helped her to understand that she has the exact same potential that they had when they were trying to like get through in their careers and that she could be like a huge name in the ballet world like if like if you could get your confidence up and believe in yourself you could do huge things and you could be literally making major moves in this industry in terms of diversifying it yeah. And, like, like you can be that. So it was a really, really great thing that that mentorship took place because it really helped her a lot. And she got her confidence back up. She started feeling good about herself. She went on to dance in a ton of fantastic ballets, performing in a variety of classical and contemporary roles, so many that I could never list them all on this podcast. It would be fucking years of a podcast. But in two thousand and seven, A really great thing happened, and she was appointed as a soloist at ABT and became the company's first Black female soloist in two decades. So, for anybody that doesn't know, I've literally never seen a ballet in real life. (laughs) I've never been to one, so I don't know shit. But, I mean, I've watched movies where you see ballets being played. It'll be a big scene, and then somebody will come out by themselves and have their little solo act, and usually they're the best dancers. And so she was finally selected to be a soloist in these ballets, and it was giant. So very, very huge for her. And then, even better, in 2012... She landed her first title role in a ballet called The Firebird with new choreography by an extremely popular and sought-out choreographer named Alexei Ramansky. And it was one of Misty's most important roles in her career. And so her mentor, Susan, basically was like, this is huge and rounded up like every high powered black woman that she knows from various companies from like BET to MTV and invited them to come watch her performance as well as just celebrate like this massive accomplishment towards diversity in this industry, because it had been, like I said, two decades since this had even occurred. And it was kind of like a historical landmark for ballet, um, in a sense. More will come later, but it was it was very huge, and it was kind of just like proof that whoa, like big things are happening, and they're happening now, and we need to get everybody here to witness it themselves because this is really really great. And so she put on an incredible performance. The crowd was like in tears crying the entire front row was filled with faces of accomplished black women who were like beaming from ear to ear over what they were witnessing and it was an incredible experience that misty got to have in her career just being on stage as a soloist in this performance looking out and seeing all these faces that were there to celebrate for her it was massive and then in all those
1: young faces can you imagine all those young faces looking at her and seeing a ballerina
0: seeing themselves A ballerina who did not fit the mold that ballet had enforced on ballerinas forever. (laughs) And she was there doing it. So... Really crazy though. She, after the show, she's like backstage, like saying hello to all these people. Everyone's cheering and excited. And she's like, Oh my God, you guys, I'm in so much pain. And they're like, What do you mean? She's like, I have a fracture, but I didn't give a shit. I was not going to miss this opportunity. So I performed with an injury anyway, and I'm dying in agonizing pain wow (laughs) so she performed like the greatest ballet performance of her life with the most prestigious audience and was injured the entire time doing it and no one had any idea oh wow i know so obviously she had to go get surgery and then she came back several months later after recovering And then again, she went on to dance in, like, billions more ballets, getting tons of fabulous reviews from critics. And then The Big Hurrah took place on June 30th, 2015, when she became the first black woman to be promoted to principal dancer in the company's 75-year history, which is the highest rank that you can get within a professional dance company. Mm -hmm. So she hit the jackpot. She was, like, CEO of Ballerina. (laughs) she really does. I guess like yeah, vice president CEO. I don't know, she nailed it.
1: Can you imagine how accomplished she felt though, like finally just breaking through and and doing something that that no one thought was possible.
0: Well, and also that she didn't think was possible, you know? And that's I think the most like um inspiring part of her story is the fact that another black woman was able to mentor her and introduce her to other black women who'd gone through the exact same things she'd gone through in their own industry yes and that they mutually helped uplift her to be like yo we know you're down but like we're not gonna let you be down like you're gonna fucking do this shit (laughs) like we are going to make sure you do this shit
1: that's what it takes though. We have to support each other. We have to support each other as women. Yeah, that's how it that that's how it happens.
0: I mean, if she didn't have that, who's to say what would have happened? She might have said screw this, I'm out. It's not going to happen. It's not for me. And that group of women that were there for her made helped make this happen. I mean, she made it happen and she was a naturally talented ballerina from literally the minute she put on those shoes and danced in her boys and girls club. And, you know, she just needed to get that support to realize that, like, she actually can do this. And that is the greatest thing of this story to me. I think it's phenomenal. It's a lesson to us all, for sure. It really is. All of us women listening, yeah. Um, so, in addition to her incredible ballet career, another thing I thought was hysterical that I couldn't help but announce, she was basically, like, best friends with Prince really (laughs) oh that's awesome she performed in his music video called crimson and clover and she performed alongside of him in 2011 on the lopez tonight show dancing to the beautiful ones and they did like several other several other collabs together which i just think is awesome Um, She also became a sponsored athlete for Under Armour, which I think this is insane. Under Armour, for her sponsorship with Under Armour, she made more money in that sponsorship than she did in her entire ballet career. Like, what the fuck? Wow. That is insane. And her Under Armour woman-focused ad campaign was widely publicized, and it resulted in her being named an ABC World News Person of the Week. And then even cooler, in 2016, Misty and President Barack Obama were interviewed together in the first of a three-part video series with Time and Essence magazines on topics of race, gender, achievement, and creating opportunity for young people. How wild, is that? how wild is that? Oh, she's awesome. Like, she's sitting with fucking Barack Obama talking about race and gender and achievements. Like, what in the world? Like, she's like, how did this happen? You know? <laughs> like, I'm fucking chilling with Prince. I'm like hanging with Barack. Like, this is nuts. And then more recent news. She just recently co-founded a fundraiser called Swans for Relief, which compiled videos made in May of 2020 by 32 ballerinas from 14 countries dancing the Dying Swan, and the resulting YouTube video raises funds that will go to each dancer's company's COVID-19 relief fund to alleviate the impact of the pandemic on the dance community. So that's really cool. And then to end the quote, in Misty's documentary, she starts off by saying something that's huge. And what she says is, sometimes people think that I focus too much on the fact that I'm a black dancer. And this statement was followed by a statistic, which stated... Only 1% of ballerinas make it into elite companies each year, and an even smaller fraction of those ballerinas are Black. Mm -hmm. So not only did Misty make it into an elite company, but she was promoted to a soloist and the principal dancer, which is a massive, 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 almost impossible accomplishment for a Black woman in the ballerina world. And how do you not talk about that? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It it absolutely should be talked about. Yeah, should be celebrated for sure. It should completely be celebrated. So that is my story about Misty Copeland. She's also alive, prospering, married, living her best life. And um, she's made a huge impact on diversifying the ballerina sport dance i don't know what you call it for sure um
1: i don't know i i love that i love that she was supported and and i agree with you that if we don't support each other a lot of great things are not going to happen um and and so yeah thank 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 i'm so thankful that that everyone supported her and and made her realize like no you can do this and not only can you do this but you will be a star and and break the mold that needs to be broken. So that is an amazing story.
0: It really is. And I also just like, especially as we know, like the modeling industry, dance, ballet, like all of these industries have this horrible pressure on women to have very unrealistic body types that oftentimes are so unhealthy that people can die. And... I think, you know, I talked about this in a couple episodes ago and I covered Halima in, I think it was like three episodes ago, but Halima was a Somali Muslim black model who paved a huge path for Somali Muslim black models in the modeling world. And, you know, it's just, I love seeing these women that come into these industries who are so, so tightly focused on one ideal and, and they just come in and they blast it to pieces and they're like, nah, it's not going to be like that. Like, I'm here gonna, I'm going to do something different. And so, like, we need that. So, I just love that. I love a good story about women coming in and breaking those horrendous ideologies of of physical appearance and and just fucking blasting them away. And- it makes me think, too, of, of Fanny's mom who said,
1: you know, if you respect yourself, you know, people will respect you later on. And and that's true of, of Misty. You know, um, it took her finally realizing, like, you know, no, I'm beautiful. I'm an amazing dancer. And then people around her also, you know, supporting her um, for her to, to break through. So, um, yeah we have to believe in ourselves too there's a piece of that we have to despite people just like uh you know pushing pushing you down you know if you if you're black or um if you're breaking any mold you know um because mm-hmm. it happens to women of all of all all colors so as well yep wow
0: Woohoo! Been so fun
1: <laughs> i'm learning so much i know
0: right <laughs> My my head has just become this giant knowledge bank of just like so many cool women. But um do did you possibly have any women of the week? Should we shout out some women in our own lives? I do. My friend is amazing and she just published
1: um her children's book called her, her name is Angela Shante. Check her out, angelashante.com. Um and she just published The Noisy Classroom which um, is amazing and validates classrooms that, are, that learn with a hum or louder and are not the uh, quiet in, in rows type of classroom um, and just validates that classroom. I was totally a noisy teacher, so um, if I was still teaching, this would be the first thing I would read um, uh, in the beginning of the year. I I did get a copy, and I already um, showed it to my two-year-old. Even, and we were talking about the pictures, and uh, the pictures are so much fun, and it's an all-around beautiful book, um, and of a of a black teacher who just owns her teaching and makes it fun for the entire room. So. Um, I highly recommend it. It is on um, Amazon for sure. Um, And you can find it on her site and buy it right off of her site. She has autographed copies. So um, and this is the first of many books to come. She is an amazing, talented author.
0: Uh, And also, isn't she part co-founder with you? Uh yeah. <laughs> Good point. She is killing it. She has the so game. much going on. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, we will definitely tag her in our publish release so people can check out her work and um, get get that book, dude. Yes, get it. Alright, so I also have a woman of the week and this woman runs an incredible Instagram account. That's called Wine and Women, and the women is spelled W-O-M-X-N, and she pretty much has a, I would say it's like an anonymous Instagram page, and she reaches out to women from all over the world to get their real life stories as you know, the female experience, whatever that might be. So the whole point of the platform is to empower women and, you know, promote self-love. But these stories that she has are incredible. And like, they're real stories. Like actual women in the world have experienced these things and submitted them to her and she will post them anonymously on her page with these super, super great, cool graphics. And I am just absolutely drawn in and intrigued every single time. A new post comes up. So I I mean, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the social media handle and honestly, it just brings me it brings like this for me it like it just i feel this sense of like community and belonging mm-hmm. where i read these stories and i'm like i either have totally gone through that or i totally like relate to what you're experiencing in terms of like your emotions or your perspective on what happened like they're just so fucking relatable and i don't mean that in like a cheesy dumb way like I'm drawn in and I, I can't wait for more to come and she accepts, you know, submissions from people, so I'm like trying to think up like, ooh, what story can I tell about myself? Um, but it's it's great stories. And like, you know, one that I read the other day, it was it was a, a it was a mother and her daughter who were black and they were in line at a grocery store, and I don't remember what where this took place. It could have been in the United States or it could have been a different country. I, I honestly couldn't tell you, I don't remember. But you know, some fucking white asshole dude basically, so they were in line at a grocery store and you know how with COVID-19 people are having to line up out front of grocery stores sometimes before they can get in. Okay. All right. So this fucking white asshole dude basically walks by them saying this like horrendous thing about why should he have to wait in line with black people? Well, what? In front what year of is this? Me. Like today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and like in front of her young daughter. And the mother was, like, mother was like totally speechless and mortified, obviously. And before she could even react, her daughter literally spoke out and i couldn't tell you the exact phrase of what she said but she basically told him something along the lines of like like listen sir you know if you, you know if you have that evil hate in your heart like by all means don't stand in line with us like she basically stood up to him and like talked him back down to the point that he felt so horribly embarrassed he got down on one knee and apologized to her and said he was so sorry for the ignorant statement that he made oh, wow see that i i i want to look i definitely want to see this because We need
1: to be saying this. We need to be teaching our kids what to say, you know?
0: And, like, the thing is, is that, like, her, the mother was even just in awe by the response and the strength and the bravery that her young daughter had to just, without even questioning or thinking, stand up and communicate that to him after having literally been discriminated against for her race in public in front of other people in line. Like, it's just insane. And so... You know, her, the mother was just completely in awe at what a beautiful daughter she'd raised. Whether she even had intentionally raised her to have strength like that or not, she learned it through her own mother at some point, you know? Yeah. So it was just such a touching story. And I'm telling you, every story is like this. <laughs> like, I just cannot get enough of it. So, like I said, the, the account is wine and women, but the E in women is an X. So I will also be tagging this account on social media, and I'll include it in our published episode release, but very, very grateful I found this account. Definitely checking that out. It is so great. I'll literally send it to you after after this episode, but huge Women of the Week, thank you so much. You're doing fantastic things for all women by sharing these stories that are so real and they're just they're stories that need to be heard, and they're touching people. So making a great impact. and I, I very much thank you for that. And that young girl is teaching all of us you know what what to say, right? So, right? yep, So wild okay well thank you so much thank you for inviting me to join this amazing podcast you did a great job i'm so happy that you introduced all of us to fanny and told her story and it's i'm just so honored to have her in the lineup of women that we've covered on this podcast like it just makes me feel even more happy that she's part of this group of people that we've we've shared the stories about so thank you for bringing her to the table Thank you for creating
1: the space um, and sharing Missy's story, and and for celebrating women and sharing stories that really inspire us to to follow in these phenomenal women's footsteps. Um, please know you're making a huge difference, and um, I'm sure all of your listeners are, listeners are too.
0: Woohoo! All right. Well, thank you again, everybody, for tuning in to episode 43. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with some more awesome stories. So we will catch you on the flip side. All right. Goodbye.